Welcome to More Than a Club podcast, episode four. I'm your host, Bill Leahy, along with Coach Marty Cuprion, youth director here at Next Sports. Glad to be back on the air with you, Coop. Thanks, Bill. I'm excited. November has been a tremendous month. Really proud of all of our club teams, our coaches, excited to keep building. We're going to take a break, give feedback in December, get to box lacrosse, and carry on so we can build up momentum towards the spring season. I wanted to give a shout out to our next 2020 team. Those senior boys recently signed their national letters of intent or celebrated their college commitments earlier this month in different ways at their high schools and tremendously proud of that group and looking forward to watching them at the next level. On the podcast side of things, we're thrilled that you are here again with us to venture into topics surrounding youth sports, lacrosse, and team building. Special thanks to all of our listeners, subscribers, and especially our five-star review crew. We really appreciate the emails and feedback, and we're going to do our best to keep up with your needs, expectations, questions, and interests. Thanks, Coach Coop. Today we are thrilled to welcome to the show a former high school player of mine, an all-Philly guy, first class, two-time USA team member defenseman, PLL All-Star, Johns Hopkins All-American, and LaSalle College High School All-American, Tucker Durkin. Welcome, Tucker. It's great to see you again. Thanks for having me on, Coach. We're thrilled. So we're going to hear more from Tucker a little bit later in the show, but off to our first segment, Youth Sport, our hot topic. Coach Coop? Our topic of today is, is natural with the timeline. I want to talk a little bit about the November recruiting window for the high school players uh, within our club and nationwide that are trying to play in front of college coaches. So this past weekend was a special one. Uh, we ran our 11th straight Philly Fall Showcase. It's an individual showcase event on Saturday uh, where players are mixed up with players from all over the country um, trying to make an all-star game. And on Sunday, they played in a team tournament. That concluded the recruiting period in the month of November. And really, I wanted to ask Tucker and Bill to shed a little bit more light on why is that the recruiting period? And, um, and maybe touch on some other topics like comp people complaining about the weather on Twitter um, and really observations from Tucker as a college coach and Bill with his role uh, this past weekend as well. So Tucker, could you help explain you know, what November means to a college coach and to potential college athletes? Yeah, for sure. So you know, as a college coach, you're spending pretty much the entire summer watching a lot of these guys and you know tournaments all over the East Coast or you know all over the USA and a lot of times you're recruiting these juniors this year be 2021s and you know you're watching these guys and you're reaching out and um, or you don't have the opportunity <laughs> excuse me to reach out yet until September 1st um, and the crop of kids that you're looking at you know in that two and a half month period during the summer um, you know, it's huge, right? Especially with the growth of lacrosse, it's absolutely huge. So, you know, as college coaches, you're going into this new academic year and this recruiting period in November with more of a condensed list, right? It's almost impossible, um, you know, to look at, you know, the thousands of kids you're gonna look at and make a decision, you know, on your entire class without having the month of November, right? To kind of move things in, condense things, you know, condense your cycle and reevaluate and you know for some top schools right like maybe a Hopkins or a Duke they might have a really good handle on, on 10 guys that they really want and <laughs> they've got a good shot of getting those kids you know September 1st or September 2nd but for the other you know 60 division one schools or whatever it is right we need that month of November to go out there to reevaluate kids to see who's left 
you know, a lot of time to see who's left and then make decisions, get kids on campus and move forward there. Could you tell me a little bit about the difference between your mindset going to a recruiting event um, in the past when you were the head coach at Bryn Athen and now as an assistant coach at Drexel, a Division One program? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, the difference in recruiting at a, at a school like Bryn Athen where, you know, I had an awesome experience and I was really thrilled to be there and, um, you know, really grateful that they took a chance on me at 24 years old to be a head coach there. Um, but the difference in recruiting at a school like that compared to Drexel, you know, it's night and day, right? So when I first started at Drex or at Bryn Athen, um, you know, I was going to all these recruiting tournaments and, you know, I'd probably come home and send anywhere from, you know, two to 500 emails. Um, and, you know, most of the time that wasn't yielding any results um, in terms of necessarily, you know, getting a lot of interest. Sure. Um, you know, to be honest with you, Bernathan's an, an unbelievable school, unbelievable institution. Like I said, I was really grateful to be there. Um, but the reality was, you know, when I was there, um, you know, a lot of the kids that I was watching, um, you know, were looking at larger schools, looking at maybe Division Two or Division One schools. You know, at Drexel, I feel like, you know, being there, I can go to a tournament and evaluate kids and, um, you know, pick up the phone or send an email to any kid at the entire tournament and feel like we have a shot at getting them. Um, so <laughs> there's definitely a difference in, in terms of, you know, philosophies at, at you know, Division Three, small Division Three schools, you're casting that wide net. Sure. Now, a Division One school like Drexel, um, you know, we're a lot more concentrated in, in who we're looking at and, you know, who we're really going after. That's great. So 2021 so the current juniors. Do you guys have 21s committed? We have two. Okay. We have two 21s, actually two defensemen. Um, under Volker, historically, Drexel uh, is a little bit slower in the process. You know, he likes to see how kids develop. Um, he wants to see... You know, how they play in the fall, definitely how they, how they play in November, and then he wants to see them in the spring. Um, you know, we practice earlier in the spring, so we're going to high school games. And, um, you know, it's a philosophy that I 100% agree with, right, seeing how kids – I know myself, right, I was, you know, a totally different player September 1st my junior year than I was, you know, May 1st my junior year. It was like night and day. Um, so I think it's a big growth period, right, for, for kids here. Um, you know, at that age where you're growing, you're maturing, um, you're, you know, starting to exercise and, and hit the weights and, um, you know, you're kind of entering the, the latter part of your high school career. And there's a lot of changes. Talk, I can attest to your development as a high school player. You were quite different as a freshman in your junior year. Boy, how far you came. You went from looking at certain types of schools yeah. all the way to changing your mind and having a whole different set of interests from a whole different level of schools. Tell, yeah. Tell yeah. us more about that. Yeah, no, it was it was an interesting process for me. Um, you know, it was pretty much the same timeline, I think, when I was going through high school. Because in between now and when I was in high school, it was crazy with the freshmen getting recruited. And now, you know, I think it's back to where I was. You get letters your junior year, September 1st. And, um, you know, I was getting interest, Division One interest, but not anything, like, too big. And, uh, you know, for me personally, as, as a competitor and seeing all my best friends getting, you know, letters from Maryland, you know, um, Georgetown, schools like that, Hopkins, um, you know, it's definitely a motivating factor for me. Um, and I actually, you know, early in my junior spring, committed to Bucknell. So I committed to Bucknell um, and played through my junior year and um, played pretty well, kind of got, got some more interest and it was a conversation with Coach Yu and, uh, 
And Coach Resch just asked me if I was happy with Bucknell. And I was like, I haven't been there yet. (laughs) (laughs) What else is there? Yeah, no, but, um, you know, I just thought it was in my best interest to to explore other options. And I actually played. I didn't commit anywhere. I played the entire summer um, going into my senior year just to kind of almost shot myself around and (laughs) kind of see where, you know, who was interested. And, um, you know, after talking to Coach P and and being on Hopkins campus, that was – it was a pretty easy choice for me. It's pretty cool to hear that you felt like you were in the driver's seat and you could take your time. Yeah. Where I think everyone today is, uh, as Coach Law said in our last podcast, trying to keep up with the Joneses and yeah. the, those outside influences or keeping up with their friends really kind of hampers them sometimes right. mentally. Oh, yeah. Um, and who'd you play club for or, or where did you keep playing? Uh, I played for Dukes. It was obviously a, it was a different format when I was playing. We played, you know, one or two tournaments in the summer one or two maybe three and I think I only played one in the fall okay so it was a little less intense nice yeah, yeah coach while you were on the sidelines watching young men play I was inside with some of their parents having a recruiting chat and um, talk about being in the driver's seats that's one of the things I discussed with the parents that there's so many families that just have no idea what they want every letter or email comes in they're then off to out west and then they're seeing a small christian school in new england mm-hmm. and they haven't really sorted through yeah. kind of their values so i talked about being in the driver's seat in the sense that family needs to sit down and talk a little bit about how far they want to go from home big school small school religious school non-religious school when you do that you end up with a with a list that's really reasonable for your mm-hmm. own needs as a player and as a family and i talked about from that point forward having a good lacrosse resume having some film going out and getting yourself a job while at the same time being a part of a club or making sure you're out showcasing and being Mm -hmm. seen. And then last, involving your high school coach. I mean, it's really a combo of those three events that end up getting you to a good spot. But it's your high school coach, especially lately, that seems a little bit out of the loop. You guys call, so many schools would call and double check because we see them every day in the hallway. Mm -hmm. We see them with a scouting report in the weight room. But how about if you were with me talking to the parents? Did I miss anything? No, I think that's great advice. I mean, I remember doing the exact same thing. I took a list of 15 schools that I knew I could get into, and I knew 100% that I could play there, or at least that's what you know, I think you and, and you know, the other coaches were telling me. There are 15 kind of safety schools. I took 15 schools, and this was early in my junior year, took 15 schools that probably were, like at the time, a good fit right academically right if I you know lacrosse wise probably a good fit and then 15 schools that you know if if I could go to 100% like if I get into one of these you know this is like where I want to go so that's kind of the philosophy I took sounds like you did a good amount of research yeah 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 for sure and you know it was meeting with coach and um, you know talking to my parents right and and you know kind of a combination of of coach Leahy and Resh and my and my folks Right, moving on to our next segment, our X and O Insight of the Week. In our past episodes, we talked about one or two lacrosse fundamentals that just seem to be more important than other aspects of the game. And then just spend five minutes rapping about that topic, and we'll ask Tuck to chime in a little bit. We covered stick work, and I thought this time we'd talk about the fundamentals of riding, just being a sound attackman and midfielder who desires and loves to ride. It's almost a mindset it's almost a payback session after having Tucker Durkin mm-hmm. beat on you. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it starts with, with being angry, angry that you failed as an offensive system, as an offensive player to put the ball in the back of the net. And then from that point forward, hunting down in reverse, you know, it's, it's really a one-on-one in reverse. It's your turn to, to knock it run by instead of running by somebody. And, uh, 
having two hands on your stick, playing the right angles, turning defensemen, letting the clock work to your advantage. These are all principles as individual riding. And Tucky, you remember we spent an awful lot of time yeah. at just single attackman riding, then mm -hmm. building it into system riding. But the, I mean, the ultimate insult is that one-handed attackman rap slap at the midfield line. It just symbolizes everything that they did wrong building <laughs> to that point, right? They didn't get back. They didn't have a right mindset. They weren't there to compete. They didn't honor their one-on-ones. They didn't play good angles. They didn't turn them back. They didn't let the clock work. I could go on and on about just bad riding, but amazing coach Rush would always say there's very little places in lacrosse where you have one hand on your stick and it starts with riding two hands right away. And it kind of sends a message. I got mm -hmm. two hands on my stick. I'm ready to get after somebody, beat on somebody, and enjoy doing it. Yeah. Any thoughts in reverse, right? You are yeah. the guy clearing now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can't tell you how many it's this is a you know a good topic right now because I had so many conversations with college coaches, um, you know, when I'm sitting on the sideline in frustration, how I despise when an attackman lets the defenseman you know run by him and then throws a, a stupid one-handed wrap check and half the time gets flagged and now their team's one you know a man down um you know it's something as a coach you notice right it's like what if you can get back two extra possessions a game right you might score two goals or you can get three extra possessions back a game right it can win a game and it's one of those things that you know it's very easy to kind of half-ass is, is riding, right? It's not necessarily going to always, uh, you know, lead to a transition goal. It's not, you know, how nobody's going to, after the game, really ask you how you rode. It's just yeah, not going to happen. Good point. Right? But it's little details like that and little effort plays like that that, you know, make a team from good to great or make a player from good to great, guys that do those little things. And it really sends a vibe. Yeah. You're a guy, a tackman, who's hunting down and turning somebody back, and they turn it over and you get another possession oh, or yeah. a riding goal. The vibe it sends through the whole sideline and yeah, the team the is the whole team. priceless. 100%. Yeah, and I'd be interested to, I don't know if anybody's ever ran these stats, but you know, in terms of defensive like conversion rate, getting a stop and being able to clear it, like how, that, how much that rate drops after a failed clear. Okay, it's almost like every time there's a foul clear, like the offense is going to score that goal, <laughs> right? You just defended, you know, a, an 80-second possession, right? And then it's like a backbreaker when you foul clear. I've always thought it's where team defense starts. Yeah. And then it's a sign of your team's mental toughness. Yeah. Their physical and mental toughness. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we'll go play the rest of the game. But right. I remember a couple years ago when we were playing, I forget what school it was, the ref actually stopped and the other coach had a complaint. He said, You're, how you ride is illegal. I said, the ride's illegal? And the coach said, no, how you ride. I said, that my guys hunt people down, turn them back, get after yeah. them, get some flags, put people down. Right. Yeah. Coop is an attackman. Well, I think coaches everywhere are nodding their head and uh, writing down some of the coaching points you guys are sharing there. Uh, for me, my pet peeve is, exactly that those attackmen that get penalties with the one-handed check <laughs> or going off sides i'm often calling attackmen out and just saying like that's a fake tough guy move yeah you know like you want to be a tough guy move your feet you know get the angle use your teammate um and i i agree it's contagious right if your best attackman is okay giving up the ball and not challenging the defense on the ride or not challenging himself to get above the ball when it's on the opposite side of the field then that's the status quo for your team and I loved watching Ryder Garnsey this past summer in the PLL stood out as a guy that like, man, he's, he's not the biggest, he's not the strongest, but he might be the hardest working guy when he's on that defensive end, 
um, riding, you know, or on his offensive end, but with the defensive mentality of this isn't going to be easy and I have a responsibility to my teammates. So I think for attackmen everywhere, um, you're hearing it from a world-class player, a world-class coach, um, and a guy like me that I'm a self-proclaimed lazy attackman at times. <laughs> and uh, my dad once left me at a tournament where I got a penalty and he said, if you get another penalty on the ride like that, I'm out of here. <laughs> and I was a knucklehead junior. I was playing for the Dukes at that point okay. at St. Paul's. Yeah. Um, but there I went and I got my second penalty. And uh, when I got to the penalty box and looked over to where my dad's chair was, he was gone. And uh, I had to find my own way home with another teammate to uh, back to Delco. But um, yeah, riding's contagious. So if you can have a team that it's part of their culture, um, like Tucker said, you're going you're gonna to get more possessions and your team's going to get fired up. Yeah. Speaking of culture building, we move on to our next segment, how to be a good teammate. And of course, I'm a fan of the New England All Blacks, the most winningest sports team in the world. And last episode, we discussed the All Blacks five purposes, one of which was to sweep the shed. And that was our first one we discussed, having pride in your workplace and for us, that's the field and the locker room and on the bench. But the next one I wanted to jump into for the All Blacks was principle number two, which is to leave the jersey in a better place. And we had kind of caught on to this idea later in my coaching career. And I'll just read what the All Blacks have to say right from their own words, which is the All Blacks have a longstanding saying, which is to leave the jersey in a better place. Their task is to represent all those who have come before them. An all-black is, by definition, a role model to school children across New, Z New Zealand. Understanding this responsibility creates a compelling sense of higher purpose. It's a good lesson for all of us. If we play a bigger game, we play a more effective game. Better people make better all-blacks, but they also make better doctors, lawyers, bankers, and businessmen, fathers, brothers, and friends. And so this basic principle of the all-blacks says that the path you leave for others matters. I was reading on the IMG Academy's website under leadership about the idea of a legacy notebook. I also saw this on the outstanding webpage, Changing the Game Project, which John O'Sullivan runs. Um, if you haven't been to Changing the Game Project, the site, I recommend you do so. It's just outstanding. But the idea of a legacy notebook is to have a small notebook for each jersey number on your team. So you'd have a small notebook from one all the way to, to 35. And you would sit down and write who you are, what your journey has been for the season, what were the highs? What were the lows? What were the life lessons learned? Maybe even include your picture, um, maybe where you were heading off to school. And then you would leave that notebook and that small letter with coach. And then coach each year would hand that to the new young man or the new young woman wearing that jersey number. So after just two or three years, you would have a small kind of memento in your hands of the men or women who had gone before you and worn that jersey number and what journey they took and, and what their challenges were and how they grow. And often at LaSalle, we would have guys come back, alumni come back, and, and this is number 17. And here he wrote in Timmy's book, and here's what he had to say. So this idea of building culture through the past and making sure that the, the ghosts of the past live on and they could come back and speak to the men of the present and even come back and do so in person and share where they are in, in life today. We had guys come back who were Green Berets and Navy SEALs, and, and even a dad come back who says, you know, I work downtown, but my main job is raising two autistic children. And each speaker was just fascinating what they had to teach and looking back on what LaSalle, LaSalle Lacrosse meant to them. Tuck, do you have any experiences where culture building mattered? Yeah, I do. So I think, you know, it started with LaSalle, obviously, like you were just talking about, um, you know, is where I really learned about team culture, what that actually means, right? In grade school, you're, you're 
part of different teams, but um, it's necessarily not something that's discussed, team culture. I think at LaSalle, you know, yourself and um, Coach Resch, you guys built an unbelievable culture, and I think there's a reason that a lot of the guys on that team I'm still best friends with, which I think says a lot. Um, because there was a bond there um, during those those years that was unbelievable. And we had a lot of characters those years. We <laughs> did, yeah, <laughs> and a lot of we, coaches. A lot, right? Yeah, a lot of it's guys that are now coaching. Um, you know, which says a lot. And you know, it's interesting. The one quote you said about you know the, the all blacks and leaving things better than you found them. Um, you know, Coach Petro. That is a famous Coach Petro quote that I've probably heard. You know. 3,000 times, right? <laughs> every locker room we'd walk into, every public place we'd walk into, um, when we're getting ready to leave, he'd say, we're going to leave it better than we found it. Whether we won, lost, played like crap, played really well, right? It was really important for him um, to have us represent it, you know, positively, you know, as a group and Johns Hopkins as a whole, um, you know, and he runs an incredibly tight ship, um, you know, a family type atmosphere and you know similar to my experience at LaSalle is you know you become so close with those guys um, that you play with and a lot of it is from the leadership at the top you know that that makes things important that um, you know kind of gets that culture um, across and imagine the ghosts of those jerseys at Hopkins my goodness yeah guys who wore each number you could go back in lacrosse lore and yeah. find out who at Hopkins were number two, number yeah. 11. Well, it's funny. One year we had um, everybody on the team had to pick somebody, a Hopkins alum that wore their number and then present about them. Same idea. Yeah. So that was a cool exercise to kind of learn about alumni and, you know. And were you 51? I was 51. How about Team USA and culture building? We both had that experience. Once you put on the stars and stripes, right there was some culture building. I had never had such a feeling I think I almost fill it up each time they played the national anthem, or especially when they would play the Navajo, yeah. they, the Iroquois mm-hmm. um, national anthem. And boy, just different. So, how about yeah. your USA culture building experience? Yeah, it's a different vibe. Um, you know, whether we are away for a training camp or we're competing for a gold medal, and I, you know, this isn't just a cliche me saying this. You put on the jersey, and um, it has a different vibe and a different feeling. Right when when you're playing, um, representing your country, no matter what the extent of the competition is, and you know most recently with Coach Donowski, you talk about culture. I mean, he's he's incredibly known for it. Obviously, you know, known kind of as as the guru of um, you know building culture. And I was able to experience it first year or firsthand over three four years. And it's it's hard to. You know, it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what makes Coach Dino, Coach Dino. But, you know, he was able to get, you know, 20 of the best lacrosse players in the world, biggest personalities in the sport, and get everybody worried and concerned with the collective group and not their individual success, right? And you can say whatever you want. Everybody that's putting on a Team USA jersey, you know, wants to be great. Individually, they want to be great. Um, and they obviously they want to win championships, but to, you know, form a team and get everybody to collectively buy into each other, um, and not themselves. And it's a little bit difficult to explain, but just, um, I thought was unbelievable. So a gold medal in Israel against the Canadians. Take us back. Yeah. So it's funny. The, uh, the game was at, the game was at like 11 a.m. I think it was for TV purposes. 
And so we had our team meal, I think at like six and, um, with the Israel food, we, it was kosher. So <laughs> we like, you know, had, had certain things we could and could not eat. Um, so, you know, we weren't having like eggs and your typical <laughs> breakfast. We were eating like, I don't even remember, but it was like bizarre. It was kind of a bizarre day. Um, we head over to the stadium and walk into the locker. I, I remember I'm getting like goosebumps thinking about this day. And, um, you know, the game was back and forth. We were up for a while. They, they came back, they got a lead in the third and fourth quarter. And, uh, I won't get into the controversial end to the game, but, um, obviously we, you know, we came out on top, Tommy Shriver and, um, you know, it was best, one of the best days of my life. <laughs> <laughs> you had warned me before I had headed off with Team USA Under-19 that dealing with the Canadians is a whole nother animal, and uh, it sure was. But can you talk a little bit about playing a Canadian attackman and how it's similar or different than a stereotypical American attackman? Yeah, I mean, it's totally different. Everything about it is different, right? So um, Canadians are smarter lacrosse players and they are more efficient in their movements they're more crafty they're slick and they're going to use every trick in the book to try to get you outside of your game um you know whether it's you know i've I've played guys that (laughs) the ball's on the other side of the field and you know they're talking about you know kind of buddying up with me and and doing this (laughs) and that and then i turn my head when the ball's on this side of the field they're cross-checking me you know in the in the groin area (laughs) and you know just like you know, just their style of play, they're obviously very one-handed. They're not going to put the stick in their weak hand very often, but they're going to find a way to get to their strong hand. And, you know, defensively, it's about discipline, right? It's about discipline and, um, you know, kind of playing with controlled aggression. You got to match, you know, their craftiness with your strength and your athleticism and discipline and understanding the scout, understanding, you know, who these guys are, what they like to do, right? They all might be one-handed, but some guys might like to roll, some guys might like to step away and drive top side, right? And, you know, that's just on the ball. You don't – I mean, you start talking about off the ball, right, how crafty they are with their seals and the screens and, um, you know, how quickly they move the ball, right? Anything on the ground is, you, you know, you've got to take their freaking arms off, right, to not, not let them pick up the ball, right? It's not, you don't go for the ball um, versus Canadians at that level. You take their freaking arm off and, and, and move them away from the ball so hopefully somebody else can pick it up. But uh, totally different style, right? So, like, I'm I'm used to covering Dodgers, right? American Dodgers that are, that want to, you know, pick the ball off a missed shot off the end line and, and try to dodge me to the cage, and that's just not the style. It's more, you know, a little more settled um, and a lot more skilled and crafty. You can't give it a minute. You can't give them an inch off the ball, right? You might be, um, you know, literally touching a guy um, on the crease. And their teammates will feed that right in there. And, you know, by the time it takes you to lift your stick and then check down, the ball's in the back of the net. So, like, you literally have to stand with your stick in the air and that ball comes in and you take off their arm. Wow. Tell, tell Hopefully. Us, Hopefully. Tell us more about that day. Was uh, Mike Krzyzewski uh, speaking to you guys before the game? Yeah. yeah. And so, what was that like? So, Coach K uh, called in. He's a friend of Coach Dino's. And... Um, you know, just, just spoke to us pretty briefly, man. And, um, you know, his message was pretty simple about playing for each other, right. Playing for our, our country. 
and um, just making sure that, you know, we leave this day, win or lose, just that we left, you know, there was no, there was no doubt, right? Don't be, don't be intimidated. Don't be scared, right? You've, you've earned this opportunity and now it's time to, it's time to go take it. So what was that like post game? Uh, how much longer were you guys in Israel after the championship? Yeah, and- so I, th- I heard two days, right? Post game, we went to a local pub and uh, all the families. Actually, post game, we went back to the kibbutz, is where we were staying, and we had like a little rendezvous with all the parents and the families. And um, you know, we had a thing. We'd sit in a big circle before each game. Um, the entire every single game of the tournament as a team, we would sit in a big tur- circle and we talk just about different topics, just, you know, things that were going on with us strategically or sometimes. Would someone you know, lead that or? Coach Dino would lead it and we'd pretty much all talk, right? Sometimes we'd talk about each other. We had one segment where he asked everybody um, to talk about somebody else on the team, what they're doing for the team. I like that. Um, yeah, right out of our culture building segment. Yeah. I mean, he before every single game, we sat in a big circle. Right in a big courtyard, right outside our kibbutz, and uh, we talked right before we got on the bus, before every single game. So after we won the championship, we all came back to that same location with the families, and we sat in that circle, and we all went around and introduced our families. Um, so both of my parents were out there, and my nephew Declan was there too. So it was a pretty special moment. We could talk about Team USA versus Canada all night long, especially oh, yeah. Yeah. the two of us. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a sense of respect and. A little intimidation, like when, I, when playing the Canadians, you know what's coming, and you know they're going to be tough. And the windows where they throw that ball offensively, and you know they're going to be crafty, like you mentioned. But the whole thing, this is an experience that I will treasure forever, and I have the highest regard for their style, their coaches, their players. I think it's one of the best rivalries going in all the sports. I agree. Yeah. So moving on to the other topics besides Team USA, talk. You were uh, coached by two of the best in the business defensively, Tony Resch and Dave Petromala. Any thoughts having been coached by these two legends? Yeah, I've told people this in the past that I'm the luckiest defenseman in the history of lacrosse. I think I am. Yeah. Like, I, I honestly do think that I was coached by Tony Resch, who um, you know is an un- unbelievable person, number one. Anyone that meets him um, you know, immediately falls in love with him. Um, and just such a great coach and um, a great motivator and a silent assassin. <laughs> and, um, you know, when I got to Hopkins, you know, I, I can say with complete certainty that I felt very, very prepared right after my four years, three years at LaSalle, um, very prepared. And a lot of the same stuff that Coach Petro was teaching me, I was – I learned from, you know, Tony Resch in my previous years at LaSalle. Obviously, you know, they had different philosophies and on, on certain things, but a lot of the same stuff, right? And they, they were roommates with Team USA, uh, you know, back in the 80s. Were they? Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, they were. Sounds like a violent combination. Yeah, and uh, different styles, right? Coach, Coach Petro is more in your face, right? More, more of a yeller than, than Tony, but, you know, Tony will, will, will get in your face when he needs to, and you know, when he does that, you know, you really – you know, you really shit the bed there. So, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I'm unbelievably lucky and fortunate that I had both of those guys as coaches, um, defensively, you know, you can't, couldn't ask for two other guys. And both fierce competitors. Yeah. How did Petro handle you? 
how did he coach you? Was he a guy pumping your tires or was he constantly on your ass to, to do more and be better? Uh, he was on my ass a lot of times. Yeah. Um, we'd have, we had a really, really good relationship. We still do. Um, but he, he never let me settle. Yeah. Um, definitely never let me settle. And, you know, there was times if I played well, he would, he'd let me know I played well. Um, but Monday at practice, like there was no, there was no sense of if, if I relaxed, you know, he'd be all over me. Yeah. All over me. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember my senior year, we are early in the spring and, um, you know, a lot of teams, I, I was normally covering a, you know, one of the attackmen that, that the Dodger, right. And teams were moving that guy off the ball. So I was forced to kind of play in a different position and he brought me in his office and, you know, basically ran me out and said, you know, you've got to learn to be better playing off the ball to be a better team defender. It's not just going to be you covering and trying to lock down this guy. That was actually my junior year. It was my junior year when he did that. And, um, you know, it really motivated me to be better off the ball. From that point on, I remember thinking like, I want to be the best team defenseman I can be. Um, whereas like my freshman, sophomore year, I was, you know, let me just lock this guy down and you know, that's all, all I have to do. Sure. Uh, we've been talking a lot about culture and being a great teammate. I think um, it'd be awesome to hear from you. Who are the most special teammates that you've had? Um, you know, from LaSalle, your high school days, to Hopkins, to USA. Who are the teammates that stand out as energy raisers that you love to be around? Yeah, I'll say at LaSalle, I'm going to say this guy Kevin Farrington and Gordy Wells. They were our d middies. Nice. And you talk about guys that are tough and guys that, you know, are gritty. Um both of them were probably 160 pounds soaking wet and you know they could they would throw their body around with reckless abandon and play so freaking hard um at hopkins um i mean tons of great teammates i'm gonna point out this guy his name's chase winter and you know not a name that you would know from watching hopkins games necessarily um but an unbelievable teammate in that he was our um he was a scout team guy for pretty much four years, and he happened to be the guy that um, I would be covering most of the time because he'd, you know, he'd normally play that role on the other team for the scout. And he was he was a, an unbelievable player, in, you know, in himself, you know, in itself. Um, but he would work so freaking hard to study the teams we were playing and to study the guy that he was going to be at scout, and it made me so much better. And I just had so much respect because he never got like a ton of credit for it, but he would, he would, a lot of times we'd be playing somebody and he would play that guy better than he, they were, I was going to see wow. anyway. So I, I was like, you know, and I, that's what a, a good teammate's all about. Um, in the pros, Steven Brooks, uh, I played with Brooksy for five years, um, or six years now, actually. And you talk about a guy that, um, works extremely hard, cares about other people and his teammates, um, and really puts the team before himself. Like anyone that's played with him, you know, can attest to the fact that he is just an A plus human being and an A plus teammate. Um, so I was liked watching him. It was never, you never felt like he was a diva that maybe some of the other superstars, especially, um, Syracuse guys, you know, um, in that role. So that's awesome to hear. Um, another thing I was thinking about is 
who has motivated you in the past, you know, when you were a little guy and then, you know, how do you as a guy that's won a gold medal and, you know, been all world and stuff like that, how do you stay motivated or what motivates you or is it some other defenseman that is chasing you down and uh, sharing that with us would be great to hear. Yeah, so I'd say growing up, um, my parents were motivating, right? They were, you know, they were super, super supportive and they still are. Um, But I was motivated to make them proud um, for sure. In in high school, Coach Leahy, Coach Resch, um, you know, two of the best motivators I've ever been around, different styles and how they do it. Um, But, you know, guys that, coaches that would hold you accountable, Sure. And hold the team accountable, and there's no doubt about that. Um, in college, it was Coach P, right? I mean, he would, you know, I think he's written. He should write a book on on motivation in, in some respect. Um, you know, he gets guys to play hard, and uh, you know, for me now, it's, you know, when I first got out of college, it was I want to, basically, it was I want to be the best player I can be, yeah. and like you know, make Team USA. Those were my two goals. I was like, I want to make Team USA and I want to, you know, be the best player, be the best defenseman I can be. Um, and now, while while those um, things haven't changed, I'm more motivated to be a great teammate, um, to be a great leader, right? I found myself in a lot of leadership roles, um, you know, as a captain. And, um, you know, they definitely motivate me, but, you know, Equally, you know, is the guys also, I'd be lying if I didn't say, you know, the guys coming up in the ranks in the PLL, right? Yeah. Defensemen. Like, I still... You can say the names. Yeah, I still <laughs> want to, uh, you know, be the best I can be. And, like, you know, when you see other guys having success, hell yeah, it motivates me. Yeah. He's doing push-ups right now. Uh, you guys can't see that. But <laughs> he's, he's fired up. I even questioned it. Um, Coach Leahy? How about our boy Matt Rambo? What's it like to play against Matt? It's it's been great. I mean, it's been Matt had as you know everybody probably listening had an MVP season, an unbelievable season, and he was he was great last year too. A lot of people didn't just, he didn't have the visibility that everyone you right. know, saw this year. Um, but it, it's definitely cool. We have, we have a connection. You know, being LaSalle people, being um, guys that grew up in the same town, and um, Matt is a major competitor what's that like when you guys go he is a major competitor um you know you can see it in his eyes and you can see it in his body language um that when he turns it on he's he's tough to stop and he's extremely smart and what what also uh you know is probably most impressive about matt is he's willing to make the right play more like over necessarily something that is going to result in him getting like a point. You know what I mean? Ball get moved to X and like a lot of attackmen like at his level, the world-class level, best, you know, couple in the world are taking that to the rack. <laughs> Matt has his eyes up and he's looking and he'll make that skip pass that a lot of times, right? A defenseman's like flying out. Now that guy dodges or maybe jumps it one more, right? But it was all because Matt was unselfish enough to move that forward. If you watch him, right, and you know lacrosse, you can – you know, have an appreciation for how unselfish he is. Uh, but definitely a competitor, super impressive. He was the best player in the league. Yeah, and that's amazing credit to Matt because that's not how he was at LaSalle. He was just yeah. a goal-scoring machine. Yeah. But he went to Maryland and learned how to become a feeder and get his head up and his mm-hmm. eyes up, his hands free. Mm-hmm. I mean, he worked really hard at that. 
there a guy goes who's really good and gets to college and gets even better. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's done an awesome job. Tucker, I wanted to hear a little bit more about the PLL experience this past summer. I was drinking all the Kool-Aid and <laughs> anytime I got together with people and started talking lacrosse, it ended up in, you know, ha- having them follow the PLL yeah. on social media. And what was that like to be a part of history and obviously, a you know, switching lanes in the professional leagues and, you know, what's to come next for the PLL? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a PLL spokesman, but it was first class from, you know, from when they first started talking to us about this to the communication to training camp to pretty much every weekend extremely organized buttoned up um you know they treated us like pros right and i've always been a guy that's just been happy to freaking compete sure and i'm not like bitching and complaining about our hotels or my connecting flight um but this this year was a just had a different level and different vibe to it um, like I said, they treat us like pros, and because of that, you got a more serious product, right? Guys, it meant more. People were more invested, and um, yeah, I couldn't have been more happy with this year. Who's your favorite teammate on the Atlas right now? It would be Brooks. Brooksy. Yeah. 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 For sure. All right, changing gears here a little bit, Coach. Two last questions. My first is for younger guys, younger defensemen. Some advice for them? Yeah, I'm just going to for pretty much any youth player would be to enjoy it. Don't put too much pressure on yourself. Um, and, you know, what I say that with also, you know, I should preface that by saying that, you know, make sure that you're just giving your best effort and smiling and enjoying what you're doing. It's a good reminder, just a smile. Yeah. Which brings me to my last question for you. With all that great success, I'm sure you've had some setbacks, and resilience is a hot topic for today's educators and coaches. So where have you failed or struggled along your lacrosse career, and how did you persevere? Yeah, I mean, I've failed tons of times. I've played, you know, many, many bad lacrosse games, a lot, you know, and I can, like, go back and and think about how I felt after that game, those multiple games in college and pros, right, with Team USA, I played games that you know weren't up to my standard um you know and for me the biggest thing is just getting back on the horse right and taking a look at first accepting it right because I think a lot of people don't do that right when you play like crap or you fail you have to accept it you have to own it and then you have to do something about it right and for me the biggest way to kind of get back on the horse is to look at what you've done wrong and then put it in work and preparation, right, for your next opportunity. And that's going to give you confidence for that next moment, right? But, yeah, I mean, it's failed in terms of, you know, play games that, you know, I haven't been happy with. Thanks. Sure. Well, your insights were great. We just love having you on the show. And we're going to take you out of the interviewer section here and have a little bit of fun. It's my favorite part of the show where we just have some rapid-fire next homework I'm going to give you a topic, homework for a player, homework for a parent, homework for a coach. You're under the shot clock, and you give them your insight fast. All right, here we go. Player homework. What do you have for a player today? Um, if you want uncommon results, practice uncommon behavior. Nice. How about for parents today? Support and celebrate your, your kids' passions, whether it's lacrosse or otherwise. And for those out there coaching? You can't do it alone, 
welcome different perspectives and always be open to learning. And then last, what are you reading these days when we're listening to? So I read a book called Motivation Myth by Jeff Hayden um, that I really liked and just gives different perspectives on what motivates people. Um, and I think it might surprise you if you read it. And I, you know, this is an article I've read a bunch of times. I've read with, you know, to my team before. It's Toughness by Jay Billis. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot that translates to lacrosse in that article. Boy, Coop, each guest we have adds to my reading and listening list. And t- <laughs> Tucker was no exception here. <laughs> Tuck, you were great. It was so nice to see you again and to be back with you. And thanks for all the great memories at LaSalle and the Team USA support and bonding. And boy, we couldn't have asked for a better guest today. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Tucker. This was incredible. Uh, Bill, I'm looking forward to continuing to build here. Again, we want to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving holiday. I think this will be posted after Thanksgiving, but before Christmas. And we're looking forward to some future guests like Coach Resch, who we've talked a lot about, uh, Rambo, who we've talked a lot about, and Coach Manny. Um, And the bar is definitely set pretty high here with Tucker Durkin. So thank you. We appreciate the emails and feedback. Keep them coming. And we are signing off from the Navy Yard in Philadelphia. Thanks. Boy, you can hear. Ha, 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 ha.